It was the story, seemingly, of the year. That everything going for it, it was heartwarming, it was inspiring. A woman down on her luck coasts into the gas station. She has no money, she has no gas. A man, homeless, a veteran, gives her his last $20 so that she could get gas and get home. Later that evening, she and her boyfriend went back to the same gas station, this time to take a picture with the man, not just to um, commemorate, but to do something about his plight. They started a GoFundMe campaign. It went viral. News stations all over the country picked up the story of a veteran who had given his last $20 and a family who wanted to do something about it to pay him back for his kindness. Now, if the story had ended there, it would have been an inspirational and, and, and a heartwarming story, but it doesn't end there. You see... The man who had given his last $20 and had been promised that this social media campaign would uh, potentially raise some money to help him out, he, he never saw any of that money. And so he sued. Well, the discovery phase of the lawsuit brought yet another wrinkle to the heartwarming story. It seems that the woman, her boyfriend, and the veteran were all co-conspirators. They had met, concocted a plan, posed for a picture, told a sad story and raked in money. The authorities went through some 60,000 text messages and other things wherein the woman, destitute and out of gas, admits to one of her friends that it was all a sham. That the man is real, he's really homeless and a veteran, they had probably met under an overpass there in New Jersey near a casino where the couple liked to frequent. GoFundMe is now trying to return some $410,000 that had been raised to various donors all over the country. Greed's a funny thing, isn't it? Greed is a funny thing. You know, in, um, in her book, The Overspent American, Juliet Score says this. She says, according to research, two-thirds of Americans that make over $145,000 annually in today's dollars agree that they can't afford everything that they really need. 
Now, before you think this is one of those them out there sermons, dear friends, listen, this is something we all wrestle with. Ecclesiastes doesn't often get proverbial, but it is wisdom literature. And wisdom literature is actually pretty difficult to interpret, right? Because at least with apocalyptic stuff, like the part of Daniel that no one ever studies, and it's going to work out fine. You like the, okay, never mind. But wisdom literature is different. Wisdom literature feels like it should be applicable. And we've spent this whole time saying that the words of Ecclesiastes are fit words, not final words. The the wisdom in Ecclesiastes is not incorrect, it's just incomplete. I need you to hang on to that. What he's saying is not incorrect. It's just incomplete. But it's still instructive. Ecclesiastes chapter 11 is where we find ourselves this morning, verses 1 through 6. Let me invite you to stand as we hear God's word. Koheleth says these words, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls in the, uh, to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Beloved, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, speak to us and teach us now, for your servants are listening. Would you, by your spirit, put a new song within us? And would you meet us here if the old chorus of guilt and shame tries to sing its ugly tune again? Would we hear Jesus and him only? For we make these prayers in his name. Amen. Be seated. All right. There's a lot of risk in life. The text is clear. You don't know what you don't know. And you don't know when something's going to happen. However, wisdom would teach us that we are to be generous 
we're to be realistic, and we're to be diligent. So those are the three things I want to talk about. They're all related, right? They all feed one off of the other. We need to be generous. We need to be realistic. We need to be diligent. First thing, generosity. Now, there's a lot of ways that commentators have tried over the years to interpret Ecclesiastes 11, 1 and 2, right? Um, it could be... Now, let me tell you what it's not, because um, I know that uh, some of you are very, uh, are very literal. So what I don't want you to imagine is going out to a pond and taking sandwich bread and feeding ducks, right? Tossing sandwich bread. We're not doing that, okay? I'll go ahead and cut to the shortcut of, of what most, most commentators think he's talking about. They think he's talking about maritime sea trade, okay? You would take something like hard, stale, crusty bread, throw it out, um, and go on about your way. Here's the point. The point is that um, when you cast your bread out of the water, according to the proverb, you're completing an act of commitment and courage, um, if you take the bread, you throw it out of the water, you're likely to find it again. So that's the, that's the confidence that you have at the end of verse one. You'll find it after many days, okay? So if you were to take some ships and sail the ships to Palestine, from Palestine to Italy and back, this is a perilous journey, right? It's fraught with uh, all sorts of things that could go wrong. Um, but there's also the chance for a really rewarding venture, okay? You may lose some ships, you may not all get to the port, but if you do get there, load them up, trade, bring more goods back, it can be very profitable. But you have to risk it in order to profit from it. Then verse 2. Look at what it says. Give a portion. So you've been successful in your, in your endeavors. You've been profitable in your endeavors. Now, give. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. So he's not saying invest. He's not saying diversify. <laughs> Only in America. Diversify. Um, he's saying Give. Give away. If you gain from courageous investment, you are to give with the same courage. The reason you're to give with the same courage rather than save and, or, or diversify is because you don't know what's going to happen on earth. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. Now, this wisdom is all throughout the Bible, right? All throughout the Bible, we are called to be, uh, to be generous, to see that, uh, that generosity is something that is supposed to uh, be the characteristic of all of God's people. Now, as soon as you start talking about, uh, as soon as you start talking about money and how money should be distributed, people start to twitch. I love what Scott Sauls has to say about this. He says, uh, most people think that greed is chiefly other people's problem. Wait for it. 
I'm going to be equal opportunity here. Conservatives accuse liberals of being generous with other people's money. Liberals accuse conservatives of being tight-fisted people who would rather see people die from starvation and poverty than pay another dime in taxes. Everyone thinks greed is a problem. It's just not their problem. The problem is, it's all of our problem. Remember, the fundamental thing that our teacher sees in Ecclesiastes. So again, it's been a long time since we talked about the very beginning of the book. Our wise teacher was trying to set his heart, set his wisdom to understand and report on everything that is happening under the sun. And here's what he found out, okay? What he found out is, yes, Proverbs would tell you that um, that wisdom plus God's love equals a happy life. What he found, and he didn't jettison wisdom. You'll remember that we talked about this, that he still said wisdom is necessary. He just found that wisdom plus God's love equals we're all still going to die. And this was the absurdity of it all, that we're all still going to die. And that's the only certainty that he can see under the sun is that everything will eventually end. In a hundred years, think about it, in a hundred years, all new people. Whole earth, all new people, okay? Everything is fleeting, everything is momentary, everything will be here today, gone tomorrow, like a breath, there's nothing new under the sun. So there's a sense in which there is a, a, um, a desire of the teacher to seize the day, right? To make the most of every day, to live fully in the present. But that's not necessarily because he's animated by hope. He, in Ecclesiastes, is animated by resignation. If we're all going to die eventually, and we're not promised tomorrow... Today is what we have, therefore sees the day. Like I said, it's not wrong, it's just incomplete. To put a more positive spin on it, throughout the Bible, God's people are called, as Phil Riken says, God's people are called to be venture capitalists for the kingdom of God. Venture capitalists for the kingdom of God. We are constantly looking at ways to give and to invest, not for our gain, but for kingdom gain. That's what God's people are called to do. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And we have an embarrassment of riches, don't we? We have an embarrassment of riches. How countercultural is generosity? Consider this. Um, according to one scholar, in ancient Rome, when the church was first beginning to expand, it was the Romans who were promiscuous with their bodies and conservative with their wallets. Then the church comes in, and begins to live in such a way that it turns society upside down. Now, all of a sudden, they're bringing in a completely countercultural ethic, and they're being conservative with their bodies, 
and promiscuous with their wallets. They're giving away wealth. They're giving away their possessions. They're giving to anyone who had need. Look at what was happening in Acts chapter 2. And each day they gave to all who had need. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. It was radical generosity then. And beloved, it is still radical generosity now that people notice. It is the thing that, that Christians do that you can't argue with, right? So Nicholas Kristof, who's a commentator in the New York Times, um, is curious about Christianity, curious about religion, uh, but also uh, sees the, um, the heartache and the destruction that is going on around the world. Listen to what he said in one of his articles. He wrote this. He said, in reporting on poverty, disease, and oppression, Christians are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their income to charities. More important, go to the front lines at home or abroad in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, uh, obstetric fistula, human trafficking, or genocide, and some of the bravest people you meet are Christians. He says, I'm not particularly religious myself. But I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way. And it sickens me to see that faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. There's a, there's a, um, there's a subversive counterculturalism to be, um, to be both um, conservative with our bodies and open-handed with our means. Here's the question. Like I said, this isn't a them out there sermon. Dear friends, have we or do we spend ourselves to the point that we can't be generous because we've, inv- we've convinced ourselves of needs that outpace our means. Or do we suffer from greed and hoard our wealth because we want to preserve our ability to do what we want when we want it? So our preacher wants to caution us against putting too much stock in tomorrow. Here's the second thing that I want you to see, and that is you have to be, you have to be realistic, okay? Um, verses uh, 3 and 4 um, read like good Proverbs would. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Helpful to know. Verse 4, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So a lot of people tend to be risk averse. We don't like doing things and we don't know or can't control the outcome of what it is that we are doing. 
So what they do um, is they try and wait, try to understand, try to anticipate when the most optimal circumstances are going to be that they can do something. But sometimes that means they will wait forever and never do anything. Okay, so verse three talks about the inevitability of life, a realistic picture of all the things that we can't, we can't control, right? If the clouds are full of rain, it's probably gonna rain. If a tree falls, wherever it falls is where it's gonna land. That's it. If we fail to invest wisely, if we fail to give generously, we won't do anything productive, if we wait for the perfect time, that time will never come. Look at verse four. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. We can't control the clouds and we can't control the falling trees. But the, pic- the preacher gives us a picture of a farmer standing in his field, trying to judge the wind and the clouds and not attending to his field. What's he, what's he doing? Well, he's foolish is what he's doing. One who's waiting for ideal circumstances to come around. And this is, this is good for us to hear, right? Because when life is uncertain, and let's face it, when is life not uncertain? When life is uncertain, we can choose how we're going to respond, okay? One choice that we make, and I'm going to tell you this, I make this choice often. I'm not proud of making this choice often. It's just what I do. We become paralyzed. We become paralyzed into inaction. Now, one reason of the paralysis is because of fear, right? We're afraid that if I act, it will put the chain of events that I'm afraid will happen into motion. And so the way that I can control my world from getting out of control is by not acting. Here's the second way that we become paralyzed. We can also become paralyzed by laziness, right? Another excuse equals another delay. Maybe the weather will be better tomorrow. Maybe it won't be quite as hot outside. Thanks, Texas. (laughs) But there are no guarantees in life, are there? There are no guarantees in life and there's no other time promised other than the present. For the farmer, after he plants his seeds, there is always a chance that a drought will come. Okay? There is always a chance that a, that a storm will come. There's always a chance that, that some sort of vermin will come and eat the seed out of the ground. Should the farmer then wait for ideal circumstances? Well, not unless he wants to starve, to go out of business, to have no crop to harvest. You have to understand that life is full of risk and life is full of uncertainty and you can't be paralyzed by fear and you can't be paralyzed by laziness. You can't also be paralyzed by perfectionism. Unless I can do it 100% right, I better not start it at all. 
See, whether it's fear or laziness or perfectionism, they all have the same root, right? They all have the same desire. The same desire is control. Because if I risk little, I only stand to lose little. But if I risk much, I stand to lose much. The problem is, the problem is, the root of all of that, the root of all of that is the wound of Eden. When the serpent said, did God really say? Did God really say? So we clamor after control because we're still afraid that God might not show up when we need him to the most. What are the things that are paralyzing you? What are the things that you're holding on to because you're, you don't want to risk them because you don't want to lose them? It may not be money. It may be time. It may be ability. We just finished up a spiritual gifts class not too long ago. Where did God reveal to you that you ought to be using your gifts. Gifts are given not for your good, but for the community's good. Not for your glory, but for God's glory. Why are you afraid? We can live in one of two ways, either by fear or by faith. Derek Kidner writes this. He says, It's better to fail in launching out than in hugging one's resources to oneself. And you see this in verse 5. There's a mystery in life. You don't know the way the spirit comes to the bones of the womb of a woman. Now, we probably know a little bit more about how uh, life is formed in the womb than the preacher did. But it's no less miraculous. It's no less awe-inspiring There are mysteries in this world that we cannot comprehend and that we won't grasp, including how and why God does what he does. Waiting for the right time is like trying to unmask the divine prerogatives of God, and it's just not going to work. So then, there's the third thing I want you to see. The third thing that I want you to see is a call to be diligent. A call to be diligent. And it comes in verse 6. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. I want you to consider this uh, quote by Eric Fromm who says this. Greed is like a bottomless pit which exhausts the person in an endless effort to satisfy the need without ever reaching satisfaction. The self, the selfish heart, the heart that is turned in on itself, 
manifests greed not only in how we treat material things, but how we deal with motivations and relationships and everything else. Friends, if you think that greed is just a material problem, if you think greed is just a problem where I'm not putting enough zeros on my check, think again. You can be greedy in how you consume others in relationships, right? When you make relationships about you rather than about them, when you become a consumer of other people, when people are there just to serve you, to help you, to make your easy life easier, dear friends, Greed is one of the things going on down at the bottom of that pool. And so there is a diligence that is called for here. In the morning, sow your seed. Life is full of risk. We are full of greed. We must fight against that. How? How do you do that? How do you fight against this? We fight against greed only when we apprehend the good news of the gospel. It is only when we see what God has done for us in Jesus, only when we receive what God has done for us, it's only then that you can be freed to not consume people, to not hoard possessions, to not be, um, to not be stingy with your time and your talents. Because at the, at the bottom of it all, it's not about practice, it's about belief. What do you believe? Do you believe that God has given you everything that you need? If you do, you'll be freed to lavish grace upon grace and blessing upon blessing on other people. But if you don't, if you believe even in some small part of your heart that God has withheld blessing, that God has withheld mercy, that God has withheld something for your good, you'll turn in. You'll grow selfish. You'll grow greedy. Because it's all about you and it's all about self-preservation at that point, isn't it? You see, it's, it's like this. If you have Christ, you have everything that you need. You have his, his spirit inside of you, and you've been set free from the slavery of sin that chains your heart to selfishness. There's a video floating around right now. Um, it was made by a church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, it's cute. You can Google it. I, um, it's the internet. Everything's cute and Googleable. That's the second word, not a word, but go with it. Um, the family wakes up and basically um, the husband is gift wrapped. <laughs> and the, the wife is gift wrapped. The kids come in and they're freaking out a little bit because they too are gift wrapped. And everything in the house is gift wrapped. The light works, the coffee pot works. Everything is gift. Everything is gift. If you have Christ, you have all that you need. Everything else is gift. Therefore, you can give it away because of what God has given you. The gospel frees us. 
Because what Jesus has done for us, Jesus cast his body, the bread of life, on the water, offered himself, not to seven or to eight, but to millions upon millions upon millions for the harvest of the kingdom. And so, because you have Jesus, if you have little means, then live and give generously within your little means. Because it is God who cares for us. And if you have ample means, live and give generously because it is God who cares for us. We're to live and give generously for the kingdom here and now, today, because we are not guaranteed tomorrow and we're not guaranteed any more favorable conditions than right now. When you think about the early church, There was no good time, no ideal circumstances. Persecution abounded. In the 1500s, those leaving Calvin Seminary in Geneva, do you know how they packed their their belongings? They packed them in coffins. They packed them in coffins. Because if they have Jesus, they have all they need. And it frees us. It frees us not to grasp and clamor and use and hoard all that this world has or could offer. It frees us to see this world as gift and to see what's been given to us as means to give away. We live and give generously for the kingdom. So how do you do this? How do you live lives reflecting the generosity that we've been shown, the grace that we've been given, the goodness goodness that has been lavished upon us? I think part of it is you you have to ask yourself, what is it that I have told myself that I must have? What is it that I've told myself I must have? What is it that I've told myself that I simply cannot live without? It may also be, friends, for you, a chance to repent and confess and tell God that you have been living functionally in a state of disbelief. You don't believe that he's given you everything that you need. You don't believe that he'll provide for what you need when you need it. You feel like he's withholding something good from you. Do you know what the good news is? The good news is that God welcomes counterfeits and rebels and scoundrels and sinners to the throne of grace. Even people who have been putting on a show their whole lives. He invites those people because Jesus said it wasn't wasn't the well that I came for, it was the sick. Are you sick? Is your heart in need of help? Is your life in need of a restoration? Good. Good. Then come to Jesus because he's the one that can give you all that you could ever want or hope or need. And he's the only one.